This is God's word. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. We end there a reading from God's word. This passage is a famous passage of landmark importance and a real turning point in the Gospel of Mark. After this point, we'll find that all movement goes towards Jerusalem and the cross. It's a time for the question, the open and building question about the identity of Jesus to be finally brought out into the open and settled. Let me just take a moment to express how this has been building, the question about the identity of Jesus. It's been building in terms of a a tension in the passage from chapter 1 right up to this point. I'll just quickly review. Chapter 1, 22, people were astonished at Jesus' teaching. Chapter 1, verse 27, they were amazed that Jesus could command an unclean spirit to come out of a man. Chapter 2, verse 12, after Jesus healed a paralyzed man, the people were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. In Mark 4, 41, after Jesus calmed the storm, the disciples in the boat said, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? But that question, who is this, has not yet been met with a satisfactory answer in the text. In Mark 5, verse 20, after Jesus had healed a man with a demon, the man himself went away and began to proclaim in the place known as the Ten Cities how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. In Mark 5, 42, after Jesus had healed a woman with a bleeding disease for 12 years and raised a dead girl to life again, the people were immediately overcome with amazement. In chapter 6, verses 14 to 16, the name of Jesus had become so well known in the area that even King Herod himself heard of Jesus, and both Herod and the people began to speculate about how these miraculous powers were at work in Jesus. In Mark chapter 7, verse 37, after Jesus healed a deaf man from his deafness and also his speech impediment, the people were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. And then in our more recent verses here in chapter 8, the emphasis has been on the failure of the disciples to figure out who Jesus is. In uh, Mark 6, verse 52, after feeding the 5,000 and then walking on water, the disciples did not understand about the loaves. And here in Mark chapter 8, verse 17, Jesus asked the disciples whether they understood. And in verse 18, whether having eyes they see, having ears they hear, and whether they remember. In verse 19, after reviewing the miracle of the 5,000, how many loaves of leftovers there were, and the miracle of the 4,000, and how many numbers of loaves left over there were, Jesus straight up asked them in verse 21, do you not yet understand? Then in verses 22 to 26, our previous passage, Jesus performed a partial healing of the eyes of a blind man, followed by a full healing of the eyes of that man. And in our passage tonight, Jesus asks the disciples questions that lead them to see, much like the blind man was led to see. And so the main point of our study tonight is this, that God enables every Christian to identify Jesus for ourselves as the only object of our faith. So first we'll see the world's partial understanding of Jesus, verses 27, 28, the disciples' breakthrough understanding 
of Jesus' true identity in verse 29, and then using that understanding to have, we have to advance the kingdom in verse 30. So the world's partial understanding is uncovered by Jesus' question in verse 27. Here are the disciples traveling with Jesus, walking from one village to another. They had previously been, as you might remember, in a fishing village called Bethsaida. If you glance back to verse 22, it tells you that. Right on the Sea of Galilee on the northern shore. From there, they went on north. It doesn't specify, but they had to be walking because the sea ends there. They were on the north side, and they went further north. So they came to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, verse 27. And then Mark continued with a description of what happened on the way. Literally on the way, Jesus is walking with the disciples on the way to Caesarea Philippi, and Mark, our author, well remembers that Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Verse 28, the disciples told Jesus what the crowds of people believed regarding Jesus, perhaps as they were collecting these fragments of bread and fish. People made comments. They were just out and among the people, maybe a bit more than Jesus himself was, and they could gather what people were saying and give a report back. They had a re- an answer for Jesus, and the answer we could summarize by saying the crowds had a partial understanding. They believed, for example, that Jesus was John the Baptist. That's what Herod's theory was. Well, that was probably false, not true guilt, because he had put John the Baptist to death. Others said Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. Come back to that in a moment. Over in Matthew's account of this, the confession by Peter, in Matthew 16, verse 14, the disciples mentioned the crowds thought Jesus was Jeremiah. I just had to throw that in for you this evening. Um, But that statement is not found here in Mark, and it's not found in Luke. The crowds did not merely say that Jesus was a prophet, but listen carefully, that Jesus was one of the prophets, meaning a reappearance of a past, well-known, major prophetic figure, one of the prophets. Regardless, the point is clear. The crowds thought Jesus was a very prominent messenger from God. The crowds understood that this man was serious. This man carried himself with a sort of dignity and yet love, They thought he was one of the ancient prophets who had previously died and had now arisen from the dead in order to continue his previous ministry, or perhaps they thought that Jesus was a person along the lines of a John the Baptist or so on. The crowds, you have to admit, were partially right. They had something of an inkling, something of a sense of Jesus that was correct. They were tracking along a good line of thinking. God had promised, for example, he would raise up for them a prophet like Moses from among their brothers, Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 18, or Malachi 4, verse 5, where God had promised, behold, I will send to you Elijah the prophet before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes, Malachi 4, 5. Even the people who did not fully understand who Jesus was understood this much about him, He belonged to that same ongoing purpose of God as did Elijah and Jeremiah and Moses and John the Baptist. How did the crowds get that idea? How did they get even that partial understanding? It's from every word of the teaching of Jesus. It's from every merciful action of healing and just simple kindness of Jesus. 
and that he carried the note of eternal reality. He was talking about very important things. They got that. The crowds understood. He was bringing something that he understood to be of vital importance from God. He carried himself like a messenger from God, a prophet of God. The thing that the crowds misunderstood about Jesus was that he was only some preparatory figure, that he was only yet another in the long line of previous prophets, that he was only a forerunner like John the Baptist, and and so therefore there must be someone after him, others will come, the end is not yet near, there's still time. Things are not quite serious yet, messenger from God. So that you see how their partial understanding led to a partial misunderstanding that put them in spiritual danger. They thought that they had more time. They thought this was not the final messenger yet. The world's partial understanding about Jesus that we see in verses 27 and 28 reminds us of our day, doesn't it? How many people misunderstand Jesus more about that in a few moments. So we move on to verse, um, the second point, verses 20, verse 29. The disciples' breakthrough understanding of Jesus' true identity. This is the first time in the Gospel of Mark that this statement will be made. Verse 29, Jesus caused the disciples to face the issue about the identity of Jesus when asking them directly, but who do you say that I am? And the you is in emphasis here. Peter, uh, speaking as a spokesperson for the whole group of 12, answered Jesus, astounding words. He said out loud, you are the Christ. Now, I'll just take a moment to try to express how unusual this would be. Peter has what I call a breakthrough here. Peter and the disciples with him have a newer and deeper understanding that Jesus is the promised Christ. In um, Hebrew, it's Messiah. Translated into Greek as Christos. We borrow it from Greek. The word Christ is not his last name. It's a title, as you know, Jesus Christ. One way to say that, since it means anointed one, is to say king. And in English, we would probably say King Jesus. Jesus Christ, probably best in English, would come across King Jesus. Peter confessed that he's the son of the living God, the king of the kingdom of God. You remember that Peter was an Orthodox Jew. Peter had been trained since he was a little boy, along with the others, the other Jewish men, the Old Testament scriptures. Ever since their childhood days, they knew the significance of the great and repeated creed all across the nation of Israel, found in the Shema, Hebrew word for hear. Hear, like listen. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. For him to say that Jesus is the Christ, for him to say that Jesus is the Son of the living God, is for him to say he is the living God, the one that all the Jewish people have always been saying all these years, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. For Peter at this moment to state that Jesus is the Son of God was a breakthrough statement of monumental proportions. I'm afraid I haven't done it justice. We're supposed to say, wow. It just jumps off the page. Peter was saying something revolutionary. It was a statement not only about Jesus, it's actually included in it a statement about the very nature of God himself, that you could have a God the Father and a God the Son. Peter would not have been programmed to say this by his birth. He would not have been programmed to say this by his training, his childhood, his upbringing, his family, any religious training, anywhere, ever. Where did Peter get this insight? 
How did Peter and the disciples with him arrive at this new conclusion? It's Jesus opening his eyes. That's the connection to the previous passage, that Jesus opened the eyes of the blind man partially and opened the eyes of the blind man completely. It's from Jesus and from the teaching that Jesus was giving and from the miracles that Jesus was doing. He's the greatest teacher who ever lived. That Jesus is the one whom the promises of the Old Testament were talking about. They've all reached their fulfillment. His words and his actions express the authority of God himself. He carried himself like the Son of God because he is. An incredible breakthrough. We move to our third statement, using the understanding we have to advance the kingdom. Verse 30. What might you expect Jesus to say if you hadn't read verse 30 yet? If you didn't know it, if I hadn't read it earlier, you had never read it before, and I I read up to verse 29, what would you expect verse 30 to be? Wonderful. What a tremendous breakthrough, Peter. Proud of you, son. Gentlemen, I assume you all uh, are in agreement. This is, this is great. You, you, you now have ears to hear. You have eyes to see. Finally. It's getting through. Yay. Jesus did the opposite here in verse 30. Jesus gave his disciples a strict charge to tell no one how they have finally identified Jesus. The word here for strict charge is almost as strong as to say rebuke because it's the same verb he uses to talk to demons earlier. He strictly and strongly rebuked them not to speak of this. What? Why? Wouldn't we expect that this small band of 12 men with their rabbi would at this point now launch an effort to reach those same crowds that are partially understanding those crowds that are partially misunderstanding and therefore in spiritual peril? Shouldn't the disciples now advance the kingdom by going back and forth in the land to share this important understanding and revelation about the true identity of Jesus? He's the Messiah, don't you see? He's the long-awaited Christ. Shouldn't this be the genesis of a new venture of ministry and preaching? No. But again, why? We already know that the crowds would not understand the message because Jesus knows. The crowds would not understand. The people were seeing Jesus. They were hearing Jesus teach them, sometimes for days on end. They were seeing the miracles that he could do. They had a lot of data. But they're seeing, if you let me say it in the way of the previous passage, they were seeing him like trees walking around. They were kind of in a foggy sense saying, it kind of sounds like those Old Testament lessons that the rabbis used to tell us. You know, Elijah doing things, and Jeremiah doing things, and Moses doing things. Like some Old Testament prophetic tree walking around and speaking and doing miracles. They couldn't get it, and they wouldn't get it. But there's another reason that Jesus told them not to share widely yet. Because the disciples themselves didn't really grasp it yet. The disciples were partially eyes open. The significance of the statement of of Peter here didn't dawn on Peter fully. (laughs) It's implications for the kingdom of God and what it would mean for Christ soon. What it would mean for them soon. They had a breakthrough, yes. I'm not lessening that at all. But they didn't yet 
see everything clearly, to again borrow from the previous passage. Jesus was ever so ready to explain it, as we'll see in the very next verse. Mark 8, 31, let's go there, where Jesus said, he began to teach them with the, that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and he says, be killed, and after three days rise again. Jesus is ready to explain it. This is what it will mean that I'm the Messiah. But the disciples were not ready to receive it. They weren't ready to see it. They weren't ready to understand it. They weren't ready to accept it. That a consequence of the identity of Jesus is that he's the only one who could go to the cross for us. He's our only hope for salvation, see? Because Jesus was the Messiah, he must be the one to die for the people. And Luke says, or Peter, Peter says, no. Look at Peter's first reaction. Moments after Peter just had our breakthrough confession that Jesus is the Christ, then Jesus says, dying for the people though? No, 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 no. Verse 32, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke Jesus. That's how ready Peter was to accept that the Messiah would have to die. Peter had something of a breakthrough, yes. But even after the breakthrough, Peter still only had partial understanding. You can't go out preaching like a missionary with that level of understanding. He's not ready yet. The blind man who's healed partially in verses 22 to 24 still represented Peter. Peter still had poor spiritual vision. Peter needed a second touch from Jesus, like the blind man needed a second touch from Jesus in order to see these issues fully and rightly. The first touch of Jesus to the blind man enabled him to identify moving objects as people. The first touch of Jesus to Peter enabled Peter to identify that his teacher, Jesus, was the Messiah, but it would take more from Jesus, more teaching, more patience, more help, for Peter to see clearly the rest of the ministry of Jesus, just what stands in front of Jesus next. Peter could identify him. He could identify Jesus as the Christ, but he could not yet accept that Jesus must save Peter from Peter's own sins. Peter's sins of fear, slowness of heart, forgetfulness, lack of belief, lack of love, and so on. Why had Jesus come from heaven. Peter could not yet see everything clearly yet about the ministry of Jesus. Since Peter's identifying Jesus as the Christ is such a watershed moment, why did the term Christ seem to disappear from the Gospel of Mark after chapter 8, verse 29? When Peter identified Jesus as the Christ, we don't hear the term Christ again for quite a while. Now, if you're going to look this up, I'll tell you, I've done my research. There are a couple uses of the actual term Christ, but not as a prominent part of the text, as you'll see as I'm explaining next. And why is that? We have to go all the way forward to chapter 14 to get an answer, to get a time where the term Christ is significantly back into focus to a different audience. Jesus had been put on trial in chapter 14 in front of the high priest, and the high priest asked Jesus about his own identity. We join the scene in Mark 14, 60, where I'll read that Jesus remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. 
and you will see the Son of Man seated on the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death, and some began to spit on him and cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. Mark 14, 61 to 65. Right after that moment, when Jesus revealed his own true identity under oath in court, someone asking him the question, who are you? He answers, I am the Christ. When it really counted, he's under oath, he's in court, his life is on the line. What happens right after that? Mark organized his gospel with genius, carried along by the Holy Spirit. The next scene is of Peter in the courtyard being asked three times, you're not with him, are you? And he denies Jesus Christ three times. Our great confessor, our great one who launched the statement, the breakthrough statement that I know who Jesus is, he's the Christ. Peter denies him three times. The bold, previously professing Jesus as the Christ back in the village at Caesarea Philippi did not use his understanding to advance the kingdom later, but Jesus did. Jesus kept them quiet until he could say it when it counts, until he could be ready for the transaction steps leading towards the cross to be launched. It's the identity of Jesus. It's the identity of Jesus that Mark is still unfolding for us. The lights are still coming on brighter for us. And Peter would come to understand that very clearly soon, wouldn't he? Who's Jesus? He's the Savior of Peter. Peter's not right up there with Jesus, and the two of them could really make things happen. Peter's just a bump-along sinner like you and me. He needs a Savior. And after Jesus' death and resurrection in Mark 16, verse 7, when Jesus is risen again, he's at the tomb, and the women are searching for him. He has a conversation with the women. He tells them to go to the disciples, and then he specifically mentions Peter. Go to the disciples and Peter. What's he doing? He's reinstating Peter, like we read about more fully in John 21, when Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? And Peter says, you know that I love you. That whole scene is reinstating Peter three times over because three times over he denied Jesus. That's what he's doing in Mark 16, 7. Who is Jesus? The one who accepts us after our failures. The one who reinstates us when no one else would. Who is Jesus? The one who died for us when no one else could. He's the only object of our faith. He's filled with mercy and so is his kingdom. It's time. It's time to tell everyone who Jesus is. In Jesus' closing words in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is identified as the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Using that authority, Jesus told us, it's time. Go. Go make disciples of all the nations. It's time to tell everyone who Jesus is. What have we seen that God enables every Christian to identify Jesus for ourselves as the only object of our faith? The world has a partial understanding. The disciples had a breakthrough understanding, but still were needing work. And we use that understanding to advance the kingdom. So 
I have three concluding lessons or applications. Number one, confess Christ and keep deepening your assurance. Number one, confess Jesus and keep deepening your assurance. It's the inescapable question. It is the religious question. Who do you say that Jesus is? I don't know that you could find a more important question. And there's only one acceptable answer. We could say it echoing Peter, and it sounds like a prayer because we're saying it to Jesus. We say, you are the Christ. That's the answer. The location of Caesarea Philippi was an unlikely location for the first human proclamation of Jesus as the Christ. That city represented outer regions of worldliness, idolatry, and even hostility to the Christian movement. Perhaps our nation, perhaps our very generation is an unlikely location and moment for your proclamation of Jesus as the Christ. What you're supposed to take note of from our passage tonight is the circumstances under which Peter confessed Christ. Peter's confession was made at a moment when Jesus himself was in a poor condition without his proper honor, without his proper majesty, without his proper wealth or world's this world's power. Peter confessed Christ at a time when the Jewish people, both in the church and in the state, if you will, refused to receive Jesus as their Messiah. Peter did not let himself be held back by the low condition of Jesus or the opposition of the religious leaders, nor the contempt and scorn of the rulers and the priests. Peter believed that the man that he was following was the promised Savior, the true prophet, greater than Moses, the long-predicted Messiah, and so he just said it. I think there's something important for us to learn from that. We will never find our master and his teachings to be popular with our culture. We're going to have to go against the grain to confess Christ. We have to confess him knowing there will be few joining us and many against us. Paul wrote about his faith and his assurance to his student Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.12. I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted. Uh, the same Jesus who brought the gradual spiritual sight to a blind man and then to his disciples, gradual spiritual sight concerning who he is and what kind of Messiah he will be, is the same Jesus who today, after his death, after his resurrection, after his ascension, after his sending his spirit, and now ruling in heaven today, offers sight to you and to me, even assurance to you and to me, right in the middle of the darkness of the times in which we're living. So the first application from our passage is confess Jesus Christ and keep deepening your assurance. Second, identifying Jesus accurately is still our true test for who's a Christian. Identifying Jesus accurately is still our true test for who's a Christian. Many today express their appreciation of Jesus as some great teacher. Is that ever annoying? They list him along with other teachers, Confucius, Muhammad, whatever the list that they have. They're actually seeking to honor Jesus. I understand that. But they end up misrepresenting him and therefore dishonoring him. They're claiming to applaud him, but they're actually denying who he really is. You have to listen for what they say about his identity. You have to break out this question. 
Is he fully God and fully man? Answer me that. And perhaps the Apostle John was remembering the lessons learned in these early days when John later wrote a letter we call 1 John and wrote these words from chapter 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Spirit is a word for minister, interchangeable there. Do not believe every religious teacher. But test the spirits, test the religious teachers to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. That's pretty plain. Identifying Jesus accurately is still our true test for true Christians. Our third application, last one, shine. Shine as a light in the world because you are one of the rare few who has the answer to the most important question. Shine as a light in the world. Philippians 2.15, Be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. I don't think we should get into an argument about whether the generation that Paul was living in was more or less crooked or twisted than the generation in which you're living the point is that every generation on human history has been crooked and twisted. God's people are to shine as lights. We use our understanding to advance the kingdom. We share with people. We fulfill the Great Commission. We send missionaries and support them and pray for them. We live in order to serve Christ. We shine for him as lights in a dark generation. We hold fast the word of life. We share with others. If Jesus said to us, strictly, charging us not to tell anyone, then we shouldn't tell anyone. But since Jesus said, shine as lights to the world, then we should shine and tell everyone. And we obey Jesus. That's how we advance the kingdom. If he says, hush for now until I can uh, do my cross work, his work at the cross, then we obey. And if he says, share with all the nations, then we share because he's the king. He's the king of the kingdom. It's time for the public declaration to the nations of who Jesus is, that he is the Christ, that he came into the world to save sinners. We shine his lights in our very homes, across our extended family. Anybody who will listen to you, across your family, take them for coffee, sit down and explain it all from your heart. Our neighborhoods, our schools, our workplaces, our communities, we send missionaries to the ends of the earth. We raise up more. We shine as lights to the world because we have the answer to the most important question, what is the identity of Jesus? He is the Christ, Son of Man, Son of God, our Savior, King, and Lord. Let's pray.